What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, what's going on, man? Doing good, man. Good to be back in the studio. Absolutely. It's been a couple weeks again. We keep yeah. saying we're going to get back on schedule and then life. Well, we released it like last week, so. Is it, you know. Was it that soon? Yeah, it's I've been. I've totally lost track of time this month. It's Yeah, the last three months, I've, I've had trouble keeping up with time. It's like there's a pandemic or something. Oh, is that? I think that, that's, that's what true. it is. It's, it's probably something to do with it. Maybe. It's been rough. I'll tell you what, um, and I'm sure uh, a lot of people who are dealing with like PPE and stuff like that are feeling the same way, but man, I am so not enjoying that hazmat suit, especially the testing site now that it's June and it's, it's like hot. a gazillion <laughs> degrees out. Yeah. It's, it's like picture working in a sauna <laughs> all day and there's very limited time to drink water because you also need to stay in the PPE. So what you need is one of those like beer helmets mm. and then it just like, well, there's no, there's no holes at all. Is there anywhere? So it can even stick through holes. Well, then you could stick it through and then just like, you know, seal it. Right. With you know? duct tape. Yeah. Duct tape. People actually prefer to get swabbed if you're wearing, if you have duct tape on your mask and beer helmets. I would feel That's much true. more comfortable. I'd be like, this guy's like, cool. This guy's down to earth. He's yeah. one of those cool guys. He knows what he's doing. He's not gonna stick this too far up my brain. Oh geez. Yeah, it's getting hot. The last few days were cool though. Yeah, they were. Except for today. Yeah, today was pretty rough. Not gonna lie, I was in definitely when uh, time to wrap it up for the day. I was I was I was ready to go. Well, it doesn't seem like the testing is gonna end anytime soon. Doesn't look like it. Cases around here, at least, are ramping Starting back up. Starting to go up. Yep. It's so, rough. We'll see. Definitely. So today, um, we wanted to kind of go over this patient case. Uh, I had originally used this patient case for uh, my PA students, and it was uh, kind of to get them to see like multiple aspects of cardiology kind of coming together as far as the pharmacotherapy uh, management and see how we need to switch things around based on comorbidities and this, that, and the other. So uh, I figured we could kind of share it with you guys as well and see if it's helpful and gets the wheels turned a little bit. We'll yeah. see. If not, yeah, we'll try again next time. Maybe it's just too rudimentary for you. That's true. If so, so great. Sorry, we'll try harder next time. <laughs> so to start us off, um, it's a patient, um, 64-year-old African-American male who is coming to the clinic as a new patient. Um, this patient has been seeing a rural doctor and um, has been getting treatment for um, multiple comorbidities. So the patient has a uh, medical history of, of having post-MI um, that was nine months ago. Um, patient has AFib. Uh, patient has reduced ejection fraction heart failure, uncontrolled hypertension, and dyslipidemia. Um, the patient has is classified as having persistent AFib because it's lasted over um, four weeks and currently taking lisinopril 20 milligrams daily, uh, HCTZ 25 milligrams daily, atenolol 100 milligrams daily, dronetarone 400 milligrams twice daily, edoxaban 60 milligrams once daily, and fluvastatin IR 40 milligrams every evening. Nice. So lisinopril HCTZ is for, obviously, the blood pressure. Atenolol is going to be for the heart rate and blood pressure. Dronetarone is the antiarrhythmic. Adoxaban is there for stroke prevention because of the AFib. And then for overall cardiovascular risk and dyslipidemia, we have our friend Fluvastatin. Mm -hmm. 
just which is Cole's go-to for some reason. The go-to statin. <laughs> Best one. Everyone does it. <laughs> um, pertinent labs and vitals. Um, blood pressure today is uh, 164 over 76. Uh, heart rate is 98 beats per minute. Uh, ejection fraction that was last done is 30%. Uh, patient's creatinine clearance is 103 mils per minute. So the patient actually has good kidneys. And uh, the LDL is 160. So... That's our patient. All the other labs and electrolytes, all that good stuff, normal. So, yeah. So, not an abnormal case. The only thing abnormal would probably be the choice of medications. So, I'll just go ahead and say I have concerns about all of them except for lisinopril. Uh, so, we'll we'll go through that and kind of we'll triage based on what may be most important. What do you think is what do you think is the most important thing? So, yeah, and the, that's the first question I kind of ask my students is which medications if we had to like rank them concern you the most um, which need to be stopped or switched explain now i think a lot of them jumped on atenolol just because they hear me ranting and raving about atenolol and i call it trash and it's funny and, and the problem is, is that i've had to correct this is because when i asked them why it's it, uh, why do we not like atenolol they just tell me that the reason is it's trash i'm like yes that's <laughs> While funny, that's not a good reason to tell someone other than me. So <laughs> we got to explain why. It's but trash. me, that's fine. Anybody else? Yeah, me, I'm going to laugh and I think it's funny. But um, yeah, so they all kind of focus on atenolol because that's the one that I'm always ranting and raving about. So they're filling out the evaluation. So what did you learn from Dr. Corvino's class? Atenolol is trash. trash. Did you learn anything else? No. Negative. <laughs> So basically, the first thing that I wanted them to kind of see uh, was the dronetarone, actually. So dronetarone in a patient that has AFib uh, with heart failure as a comorbidity is a major issue. Mm -hmm. So dronetarone is one of those agents that, um, yes, it's an antiarrhythmic. If you look at like the guidelines and the algorithms, if a patient needs to be on, you know, rhythm rhythm strategy, rhythm control, then, you know, adrenaline is one that's listed as kind of like a first-line agent in a patient that's otherwise healthy. Uh, the problem is, is when you look at patients that have that heart failure as a comorbidity, um, they've done a couple different studies that have compared adrenaline um, to placebo in patients that had that, that fit that description, and you actually increase the risk of death uh, very quickly when you put them on adrenaline if they also have heart failure. So, dronetarone, definitely not a good drug to be using in that combo patient. And then, honestly, uh, it's probably not a great drug in general anyway. And it doesn't seem like it's working very well because he's had persistent AFib over the last four weeks anyway. Yes, definitely uh, definitely not a great option. Um, so, this would be completely contraindicated in these patients. Um, even if the patient had, uh, like, stable heart failure, so they hadn't had a recent decompensation, their ejection fraction wasn't considered reduced, you know, they still would suggest using, like, a lot of um, caution with, with that agent. Yeah. Um, so definitely uh, not a good option for this patient. You also have to worry about all the other side effects. So we have other arrhythmias that it can cause. It can cause QT prolongation. Um, you know, it can cause issues with certain electrolytes, things like that, liver toxicity, lung toxicity. There's lots of different things that we have to worry about. So dronetarone is one of those that wouldn't be super quick to be able to be able to come up with a reason why we would use this as opposed to something else, unless something other things have failed. Yeah, there's it, multiple things would have had to fail. Yeah, and yeah, even then, it's just such a I don't know. I can't imagine unless there's some arrhythmia that I'm not aware of that is it's like go to, but 
because I have seen it. Yeah, I have too. So I just wonder where, why they chose that one, you know? Yeah, and it's one of those things that I probably should have looked into it, but I always just assume that person makes terrible decisions when they're <laughs> prescribing, so I just, I just leave it at that, just kind of dwell in my ignorance. But uh, so Drenetta will be the first one. That's got to go. Yeah. So um, right off the bat, we'll get rid of that. Um, now, as far as kind of setting this up, you know, because the patient's ejection fraction is reduced, you know, I kind of think of it as we would want to control as long as they're not having like symptoms to causing them to be hospitalized or anything like that due to the AFib. My thought would be to kind of optimize the heart failure regimen. That's what I would think too. Plus Which, their heart rate, even though they're on a tenolol is actually okay. Right. It's 98. So yeah, I would, I would, after getting drenated runoff, go straight to heart failure. Yeah. So, um, and there's actually another drug that we do need to stop, but we'll come back to that one yeah, as we'll well and that. explain that. But, um, so optimizing the heart failure, once we do that, and we'll kind of explain in a second, um, that's also going to kind of kill two birds with one stone as well, because that's going to be a good option for controlling um, the uh, heart, hypertension and heart rate as well, which is going to help with AFib. So we're going to so, kill three birds. Three whole birds with but, one Well, we're going to have stone. to add a couple stones. Right. And then switch one stone around. Okay. Whatever. But there will be a few stones. But we'll get three things done. <laughs> All right. So we're just going to change three things. Forget <laughs> the stones. We're going to leave the stones at home. Wait, wait. One in the hand is worth two in the bush. Something like that. Okay. I hate all those expressions. I think we got it. I don't I think, think I good. could kill a single bird with a stone if I tried my hardest. I really don't think I'm that accurate. But unless it's like a huge stone. That would be a big stone and a small bird. And he's going to have to fly really slow because I'm probably going to miss him. <laughs> well, you know what's a big stone? Hmm. Evidence-based beta blockers. Right. <laughs> Definitely. I always say that. So optimizing the patient's HEF-REF therapy. So right off the bat, they are on one thing, which is good, which is the lisinopril. Mm -hmm. So we definitely want to have them on an ACE or ARB. Uh, it's kind of like first-line option. Um, now, the one issue I have with this is it's only lisinopril 20. Mm -hmm. So patient's blood pressure is not controlled. And even if it was in heart failure, which you guys remember the episode of heart failure that we did in more detail, like what, three episodes ago? Yeah, not very long ago. Um, we want to maximize and, and treat to target, if possible, um, our dosing when it comes to our first-line agents. So there was the ATLAS trial, which actually used lisinopril, where they compared low-dose to high-dose lisinopril, and um, patients that had their blood pressure controlled, and they had better outcomes with the higher dose in heart failure. So lisinopril would definitely need to be optimized to 40 milligrams daily, or as close to that as they can get with the patient you know, tolerating it and all that. Um, if the patient for some other reason, like couldn't tolerate lisinopril anymore, had stopped it because of side effects or whatever the case may be, then we can definitely still use an ARB as well. But mm -hmm. we definitely want to make sure that, uh, we have one of those two options. Right. And on that note, if, you know, we were stopping lisinopril anyway, since they have tolerated it, you could consider Entresto. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think we mentioned this on that episode, but that's one of the things that. I, I think often is overlooked is when you're picking therapy for uh, heart failure, they do have to be established on an ACE before switching to an ARNI technically. Yeah. Technically. Um, and so, cause that's how the, the, the study that paradigm HF trial was actually conducted. They used enalapril instead of lisinopril, but they had like this um, kind of washout period. And then they, the patients that were going to be put on Entresto were stopped for 36 hours from their ACE inhibitor and then start on a trust up. But everyone was kind of established right. on an ACE. And the idea is to reduce risk for um, 
the swelling. I mean, I forget the name. Angiodema. Angiodema. Thank you. It's been a long day. I know. And uh, so, yeah, I, I like that too. So if the patient's stable on lisinopril, doing well, um, the blood pressure still has plenty of room to go. So I think Entresto would probably be a really good option in this patient as well, um, especially since their kidneys are good, their electrolytes and all that um, are stable. That would be something that we could definitely look at doing. Um, the next first line agent that we have to add on there is the beta blocker. Mm-hmm. And there's three beta blockers, if you remember, that we're going to go with in heart failure. So we have our carvedilol, we have our bisoprolol, and metoprolol succinate. Mm-hmm. Um, so any three of those would be fine. They all have uh, evidence that shows that they reduce mortality and um, other outcomes that we want to avoid in heart failure patients. Um, but because this patient has need, or needs further blood pressure lowering, carvedilol would probably be a good option just because you're getting that alpha and beta receptor blockade. And so you're going to get the not only the decrease in cardiac output, but you're also going to decrease the total peripheral resistance from the alpha side. And so you're going to lower blood pressure a little bit more substantially compared to the other two agents. Yep. And obviously we would be taking off a tenolol at that point because that'd be a duplication. Right. Um, and so not only are we working with heart failure and hypertension there, but that's going to help control the rate with our goal rate being below 110. Um, interestingly, atenolol is actually quote unquote, okay. If it's just for AFib and just for controlling heart rate. But since, you know, it's as Mike says, trash in so many other situations, not a really great reason to use that over anything else in general. Um, but that's why the heart rate was probably okay. Just because yeah. of the atenolol. And when I say trash too, I'm talking, I'm primarily talking about atenolol being used in hypertension. So, when you see a tenolol being used for the sole purpose of primary hypertension, that's where the evidence has shown that it's actually harmful compared to other agents. Um, that I think it was a 2004 Lancet meta-analysis. And so that's usually when I'm talking about a tenolol being trashed. That's usually what I'm referring to. Although in this patient, a tenolol would not be a good option because of the heart failure either. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like Cole said, and I if think- you're using it and he's potent, if you're using it for blood pressure too, but another indication i forgot about for um, the beta blockers, he's post-demise. This mm-hmm. guy just has indications for beta blockers all over the all place. All day. Yeah, all day. <laughs> all beta day. blockers all day. So and the, Twice the, a day, at least. Exactly. And uh, the other thing is, too, to keep in mind, because the patient has reduced ejection fraction heart failure, because normally in AFib, if we're treating, if we're going with a rate control strategy, we can use beta blockers, or we could potentially use uh, one of our calcium channel blockers like diltiazem or rapamil. No go in this patient as no well. Go. Um, they have a reduced ejection fraction, so if you give the uh, calcium channel blocker, you're going to lower cardiac output, and you're going to basically take away some of that atrial kick, and yeah, not going to be going to potentially be even more harmful than uh, added benefit. Exactly. So beta blocker and either ACE, ARB, or ARNI, those things got to be on board, and they should all be evidence-based doses and medications. Boom. Boom. So Sixth, almost just about just about so the good thing is is hopefully once we optimize the lisinopril uh, or change it to entresto and then uh, add on carvedilol as opposed to atenolol um, that's gonna those can both help with blood pressure uh, now that being said um, the kind of third line agent that we always look to add on um, pretty quickly in heart failure that has mortality benefit and all that is spironolactone or an aldosterone antagonist, so a plerinone or spironolactone. Um, so in this patient, the kidneys are good, so their creatinine clearance is above 30. Uh, potassium is less than 5 because it's within normal limits. Uh, so you know this is something that the patient uh, 
unless their blood pressure is like bottomed out to where they can't tolerate it, um, this is something that we could definitely look at adding onto this patient as well, Mm -hmm. which is also good because the patient's currently on a different type of diuretic. They're on a thiazide diuretic Mm -hmm. for blood pressure, presumably. Um, but that being said, HCTZ also doesn't have good outcome data, and you've also heard me refer to it as trash. And so, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and swap that bad boy swap out with spironolactone. Now his heart's much happier. It is. <laughs> Boom. And um, now his blood pressure systolic was 164, which is, you know, our goal is below 130, 130 over 80. Um, so we very well may get there. We very well may pass that because we're increasing lysinopril or adding entresto, switching atenolol for carvedilol, and switching HCTZ with spironolactone, which has significant blood pressure lowering. So keep an eye uh, on this guy. I don't know how quickly we'd make all these changes, whether it's just today or over the course of you know time, but you know he very well could bottom out or go too low. So uh, just keep an eye on that. And, and that's a good point, cause, and, and I should have said that at the very beginning of this. Like going through these questions and all these different changes, this is like an ideal situation yeah. to where what we would want to eventually do to optimize this therapy. This is probably not going to happen in one visit, right. um, most likely. I would think the sw- initial like decreasing or the getting rid of the dronetarone, um, and then working to you know get the evidence-based beta blocker and ACE Arbor Arnie would mm-hmm. be our first visit and focus on that. Maybe right. one other change we'll get to. Um, that would be first visit, and then. From there, kind of have a quick turnaround follow-up, a um, couple weeks to maybe four weeks, and then right. start optimizing, adding on spironolactone, stuff like that. And we talked about in the heart failure episode, increasing slowly, especially with the beta blockers, because mm-hmm. it can cause it worsen heart failure in the short term if you increase it too quickly. Also, we don't have any indication that this guy um, has volume overload or that he has edema. If he did, Lasix obviously would be your go-to in that situation. Uh, but also you would want to hold off on the beta blocker or at least increasing it until he's euvolemic and um, stable. Stable, yeah. So um, the so that that being said, as we're going through this, take that into account. This is multiple visits and yeah. all that good stuff. We are we, we live in a perfect world in this studio. So, so that's it's our goal. Very perfect. <laughs> so um, we have ASR um, or Entresto or the Arnie. We have a beta blocker, so we'll say Carvedilol. And then next visit, we're switching out HTTZ with spironolactone. So heart failure from that point is good for the most part. Now, one thing, if the patient was having um, like hospitalizations due to heart failure, so acute decompensations, um, symptomatic, having other issues, one thing that we have some data to kind of back up um, is be, especially since he's African American, um, we can also potentially add on that combination of hydralazine and um, 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 isosorbide mononitrate. Thank, dinitrate for I mean, Bidil. Dinitrate, yeah. yeah. Thank Bidil. you. I totally blanked on the other uh, ingredient in Bidil. Perfect. I've only said it a hundred times this month <laughs> in my class. So um, isosorbide dinitrate and hydralazine. So that drug is it's available as a fixed dose combo, which is called Bidil, or you can use the either uh, isosorbide mononitrate or dinitrate as a separate agent, and then hydralazine separately as well. And basically, you're getting dilation of the arterial side and the venous side, and so you're getting some added benefit. That being said, um, the real data comes from the AHEF trial, and that was done in African-Americans. Our patients who self-identify as an African-American, so I don't know if that was the early stages of political correctness or why they went that route, but that's where the data actually shows the most benefit. So, you know, if, if a patient has heart failure, let's say they're, you know, Caucasian, and 
we don't have any good data that shows that that adding on AF or um, AF adding on that combo uh, Bidil actually reduces mortality or anything like that in that patient population. However, um, in a patient who cannot tolerate an ACE or ARB, then the guidelines will say, give it a shot. Maybe it'll help a little bit. Yeah. Um, but there's not good data. It's kind of a weak recommendation. Hmm. So that is one, one area where they will extrapolate the data to all races. But it, the true benefits can be with African-American patients um, who are already had optimized therapy and then getting that as an add-on. And that's a decrease in mortality and decrease in heart failure hospitalizations. So good. Good deal. Positive. So that's definitely one thing we could look on, uh, look to adding as well. Um, you know, that, that would be four different medications for his heart failure. So that would definitely be at Over least time. three visits in. But, but that's also can, basically addressing his hypertension. Like there's not, you, I don't think we would do anything else specifically for hypertension other than that. So yeah. Killing exactly. two birds. As always. One in the hand. Or with, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what we say. So, um, you know, that's kind of optimizing his heart failure treatment. Now, as far as his AFib goes, uh, you know, we already have the beta blocker on point. And so, like Cole mentioned earlier, his heart rate is at goal. Um, he is having persistent AFib, so his, his heart is not back in normal sinus rhythm. Um, it would it would kind of depend on, you know, what the patient's, like, history has looked like since they've had AFib. So they, right. is this the first time it's been persistent? Um, is this, you know, something that happens for a while and then eventually it will go back into normal sinus rhythm? It just kind of depends on what Have the, they had more severe symptoms in the past? Hopefully somebody had a reason they started dronetarone. But yeah, if we don't have that history, then presumably we would just take it off and wait until we have an indication to, to add on a rhythm control. And the, the rule of thumb as far as heart rate goes as well is, you know, less than 110 is kind of our goal, heart rate. Um, it used to be less than 80 for everybody. And yep. then they did the race two trial where they compared 110 to 80 and they didn't see a difference in outcomes. And so they've relaxed that a little bit. However, if the patient is still having symptoms due to their AFib, then they push it down to 80 right. and go from there. And rhythm control used to be what everybody did uh, because they thought rate control was inferior. Then we had the Affirm trial, which showed that there wasn't really a difference between them, and rate control generally had less side effects. So that's why we usually start with rate control, just because the drugs are a bit safer than rhythm control. Yeah. Antirhythmics. We typically think of uh, increase in adverse effects, increase in hospitalization potentially, um, lots of different uh, issues seen with being on an antiarrhythmic versus just a rate control strategy. Mm -hmm. And in this guy, concerns with um, heart failure. Exactly. And if the patient was, if, if let's say hypothetically we needed to use an antiarrhythmic in this patient, if the patient had no other comorbidities, you know, real, realistically, we could use several different antiarrhythmics. We, you know, we could have, um, we could use flicanide, we can use sodalol, um, we could use propafenone, we could use, you know, multiple agents. It's kind of like a first line, technically dronetarone, even though, mm. um, but uh, any of those would be okay first line agents. Um, and then if those weren't enough, then we could use um, something that's considered superior as far as effectiveness, but um, worse as far as adverse effects, and that's same amiodarone. We typically see that um, used a lot more nowadays anyway. It is superior um, to things like sodalol that's been compared to head-to-head, but uh, the adverse effect profile is usually a little bit worse. So um, you know, any of those first-line agents would be fine. Now, 
that because this patient does have heart failure, that changes things up a little bit. So in that particular case, if you're looking for a rhythm control strategy in a patient that has AFib that also has heart failure, um, left ventricle dysfunction, um, you have to use either amiodarone first line or um, defetilide, ticasin. Uh, those are the first two uh, first uh, line agents that are acceptable in both right. those comorbidities. Mm-hmm. So no structural heart disease at all, just AFib, then you get a whole list of things you can use. If you have uh, heart failure, you're a little bit more limited. limited. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, thinking amiodarone or ticasin are the two agents that we would have to use in that particular case. Right. But for this guy, we'll probably just switch to carvedilol, leave it there for a while. See how he does. And then... Yeah, we'll have amiodarone in our back pocket. Um, Just walk around with it. <laughs> it's a pill in the pocket like um, a, with like, amiodarone instead like of flecking. Like a can of snuff. <laughs> Fleck and I had this strategy called, uh, for those of you who don't remember, um, pill in the pocket. Oh, where yeah. you would just use that to like pharmacologically cardiovert yourself if you start having some AFib. Mm-hmm. Seems, uh, seems bold. It's like they got their nitroglycerin in this pocket. Yeah. Flecking out in the other, in the other pocket. pocket. Just toss that bad boy back. <laughs> Next thing you know, no more AFib. <laughs> Or you have to go to the hospital, one of the two. <laughs> so you're either dead or your heart's not fluttering. Right. So you don't see those other agents used too often anymore. But no. amiodarone definitely has its uh, fair list of side effects. Um, you know, if we were going to go that route, we'd have to think about not only hypothyroidism, but potentially hyperthyroidism as well. can kind of go both ways. Um, we got to worry about neurotoxicity, optic neuropathy, so like any kind of visual impairment, photosensitivity, can even discolor your skin like a bluish color yeah so many just solid good things with (laughs) so many reasons to use it as well as hypotension bradycardia because it does have some rate control as well so lots of different things its half-life is super short at 40 to 50 days and so if you needed to come off of amiodarone uh it's going to be there for a minute so yeah definitely if you're going to use an antiarrhythmic it's a good choice in this patient but know that there's a lot of adverse effects yeah so that's the one side of AFib. So we have is rate control handled and possibly rhythm control if ever needed. So the other side to it is uh, anticoagulation, which this guy is on anticoagulation, which is just fantastic. Uh, the anticoagulant that he's on happens to be a doxaban, um, which if you heard us talk is almost never our first line when you're looking at the, the DOAX. So we have a doxaban, rivaroxaban, and a pixaban is the three. It's also dabigatran sitting over there. Um, Way over there. His problem, though, is that his kidneys are too good. So his creatinine clearance is about 103 and um, above, I believe, 95 for doxaban. It's contraindicated because they're clearing it too fast. Um, so probably not a fantastic option for this guy. Which it, it, It's the only drug that I can think of that has that stipulation. If your kidneys are too healthy, yeah, like when you go to the it. You go to the, the renal... You know, I don't dosing. think they're, so you go to, on Lexicon, you go to renal impairment, I think is what it says for dosing. There's no renal unimpairment option. So under, they had to list it under renal impairment. It's like the only one. I think they listed it as renal dose adjustment. Okay, whatever. And that's what they did. But I, I like my idea. I do better. like yours. Yours is way funnier <laughs> for sure. And that, that's a good thing that Lexicon should definitely look into changing just yeah, for a You're right. Laugh. It's renal dose adjustment. Then under that, they have renal impairment. So I wonder what they, I don't know. I'm going to have to look at it and see what they say for a doxapan. Yeah, that's... It's one of those things. It's uh, definitely, I can't think of any other drugs where you're like, sorry, fast. sir, your kidneys, kidneys are, too, are too good. Kidneys are too great. The other thing is, so if you look at the guidelines, any of the DOACs are going to be listed for this patient is acceptable. Yeah. 
but we don't just follow the guidelines because no, we, we like don't. evidence. We yes. don't like all that nonsense. So if you think about the trials um, that have kind of been looked at as far as anticoagulation, usually comparing one of the docs to warfarin um, in patients with AFib and preventing strokes and all that. Um, Adoxaban obviously is out just because it's kidneys. So dibugatran would also be uh, an option listed. However, if you look at the RELY trial, one of the things they noticed was that there seemed to be like a higher risk of MI with dibigatran compared to warfarin. So this patient has already had right. an MI in the past. So I would definitely stay away from dibigatran as well. Um, even if I was just treating like a DVT or something in this patient, I would keep away from dibigatran with really anybody that has any kind of like coronary artery disease just because we want to make sure that that statistic doesn't rear its head in this patient um, mm -hmm. that we're treating. So... Um, Dibigatran also would be out. So our two options left over, we got rivaroxaban and apixaban. Mm -hmm. So rivaroxaban Zeralto uh, was compared to warfarin in the Rocket AF trial. And what that showed was that it reduced the stroke risk as effectively as warfarin did. Um, no adverse effects um, that were different in either group. And so also a good option. However, apixaban, Eliquis, um, in the Aristotle trial, greater stroke reduction, and lower bleed risk compared Boom. to warfarin. It's a no-brainer. Going to kill two birds with one stone. Again. We're getting, so many birds are just being slaughtered in this episode. <laughs> so I personally would use a Pixaban this patient uh, unless there was an issue with his insurance because, unfortunately, in the real world, there's that whole His formularies. But in the core consult or X clinic, right. everything's use, covered. Right. Everything's covered 100%. Yeah. We live in this utopia. It's real great here. And um, a Pixaban would be our go-to. But Zeralto, not a bad choice. Definitely something that, um, you know, is an option out there. But the Adoxaban, Dibigatran, they're, they're out. So, um, and, and real quick, too, because we didn't mention this, why is this patient, why right. is this patient a candidate for um, anticoagulation due to their AFib? So there is a scoring system called CHADS-VASC, which I'm sure you guys have heard us talk about before. Um, basically, it's just uh, it's an acronym. Each one stands for something different. So, for example, like the C in chat is congestive heart failure, even though we're kind of getting away from that congestive terminology, but it's fine because I don't know what well, else. Uh, then they would just this guy's name would be, be real weird. It'd have to be Hadsvast. <sighs> right. Yeah. It's just hard. It's just too hard to pronounce. So yeah. we keep it at Chad. And, um, you know, H is hypertension with a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90, so on and so forth. So it's actually, I'm wondering when they're going to actually changes because also the 140 over 90 yeah. is the old guy like the GNC8 guidelines as well so I'm very curious to see if they do go in and update this at all they might just yes yeah, I guess most people just think hypertension so if they have a diagnosis of hypertension then they give them a point but yeah I guess technically it is 140 over 90 interesting yeah so I guess it's like stage two hypertension of the new guidelines so yeah. maybe that's what so maybe that's at. still what they want they might yeah. still want it there they may you never know mm, interesting I don't know. We'll see if they ask our opinion about it later. I bet they will. Definitely the, will. Uh, American Heart Association is always calling AHA? us. AHA, yeah. Always calling us. Always looking us up. So, <laughs> we're hard to reach. Um, but this patient, uh, when you calculate their score, um, is going to be at least a three. And so um, if it's two or more in men, three or more in women, then anticoagulation is recommended to, to reduce the rate of uh, stroke. Or reduce the risk of stroke, not rate. We well, don't would wanna, also reduce that too. We want to reduce the has, rate to zero. <laughs> right. If you had multiple, yeah. So um, definitely, in this patient, uh, keep going with the anticoagulation, but we would switch from indoxaban to apixaban. And because they're both DOACs, uh, you can basically just 
stop the Indoxaban one day and then start the Eloquist the next day, um, and you're good to go. Yep. And if you were concerned about bleed risk, you could look at a has blood score, which this guy's looks like it'd be pretty low. I think hypertension is his only risk factor. So yeah, still good to go there. Definitely. And it has bled too, just to throw this out there in case anybody wants to correct us. Has bled, we know it's it's been validated with warfarin, not necessarily the DOAX, however, it's still something you can at least look at. And all it is is to give a general idea of bleed risk anyway. Right. So you don't have to yell at us. Okay. Right. Calm down. It's not like there's a hard cutoff or anything. Don't take it this seriously. Yeah. Y'all, y'all are way too serious. Just, just, I'm just trying to like it's just cut, off, cut off the, uh, cut off the uh, co- negative comments before they even get to <laughs> right. us. Now it's a new tactic we're trying. We're trying to be proactive instead of reactive, like the acne medication. No, no, no. That's not what we. That's not what we meant. <laughs> so we're gonna get out ahead of it now. Um, so yeah, so that patient uh, would have their um, their anticoagulation covered at that point. Um, you always said blood pressure goal was less than 130 over over uh, 80. Mm-hmm. Now. The patient's medication is all kind of optimized at this point. Um, however, if the patient needed further blood pressure lowering, after all the stuff that we've added, most likely not the case. Um, and we would definitely want to check adherence and go through all that because it would be very It would be rare. extremely unlikely. Um, however, if they did, and that person was like definitely taking everything, um, then in that case we could potentially add uh, amlodipine in this patient. So if... Uh, you know, we think of like the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Those would be harmful in this patient. Um, the dipyridine calcium channel blockers we can potentially use, but um, they're not going to add any additional like mortality risk reduction or anything like that. They're just going to be there for blood pressure lowering benefit. Right. At least from a heart failure perspective. Exactly. So the, I think it was the PRAISE-2 trial that showed that they were no benefit or risk. Nice. So you can use uh, amlodipine in those patients and you'd be okay. All right. So it's only one left. Only one drug left. It's your mm. favorite fluvastatin. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing with fluvastatin, Cole? Um, so yeah, this guy's LDL is 160 and I'm not surprised because he's on fluvastatin. Um, Garbage. But he has uh, obviously increased LDL and a history of an MI. Um, plus hypertension, which is another risk factor for cardiovascular events. So we want to get this guy's LDL down quick, and fluvastatin's not going to be not going to get the job done. Um, so he's considered secondary prevention. So he's had an MI, so you don't have to calculate an ASCVD risk score. This guy has clinical ASCVD. Um, so it'd be very reasonable to switch his statin because fluvastatin is not considered high intensity. I think if there was a wimpy intensity, it'd probably be in there. Um, so I'd say go ahead and swap it and go ahead and start at a high intensity. Secondary prevention, it's very reasonable. Um, TNT trial compared a torvastatin 80 to 10 and um, showed reduced events in secondary prevention. So um, reasonable to get started on that. And if we need to back down from a high intensity, then that's fine. So our options would be um, a torvastatin 40 or 80 or resuvastatin uh, 20 or 40. And go ahead and get them started on that with a goal LDL um, to be less than 70. So initially we want to get at least a 50% decrease, but... We want less than 70. And if you're looking at the um, secondary prevention algorithm from the new LDL guidelines, um, I would probably consider this guy at um, pretty high risk. Uh, yeah, I would probably consider him at pretty high risk with his other disease states. So if he's not getting less than 70 with the high-intensity statin um, over the course of six months or so, it'd be reasonable to add on Zetia to try to get him below 70. Yep. And that's kind of extrapolating data from the... Um what is it, Prove-It trial, mm-hmm. where they did um, simvastatin and azetamide. 
uh, obviously we don't have data with atorvastatin and azetamide, but um, we still, you know, at least there's some evidence backing up azetamide, so that's what the one we're going to be adding on, as opposed to we have uh, data in like adding on phenofibrate right. in patients, especially in patients with diabetes, and we got no additional benefit. Right. So at least this, there's a chance to get some some benefit. Um, the and then the other thing is the third line. If you still really needed something and you're still not at goal of less than 70, then you could look at one of the PCSK9 inhibitors. Also, kind of a weak recommendation from the guidelines, but something that uh, you know is is available has some data behind it. The problem is the cost still. Yeah, not very cost effective. But um, and then if you're you know as far as because this patient meets the criteria for secondary prevention, you know, really anything that's a hit in the history of uh, ASCVD. So that includes, you know, a patient with acute coronary syndrome within the last 12 months, uh, history of MI, history of ischemic stroke, peripheral arterial disease, all those things constitute ASCVD, yep. you know, in, in the patient's history. Then what Cole was saying about high-risk conditions and why this patient would automatically be a candidate for high-intensity statin, regardless of what their overall risk is, is because if you're looking at a patient who, you know, once you've kind of done healthy lifestyle management and stuff, you're separating them into two groups that have had clinical ASCD, patients are, they have certain like uh, high-risk conditions that would automatically make them a candidate. So age greater than 65, um, a history of cabbage or PCI, diabetes, LDL above 100, hypertension, um, CKD. So this patient has a couple of those. So yeah, like Cole said, automatically going to put them on a high-intensity statin. If they have issues from there, you can always come down, but you don't have to titrate this one up. Just boom, 80, torb 80, good to go. Boom. One bird with one big stone. Exactly. That's a big tablet, too, if you did a Torvastatin 80. There you go. And uh, just to kind of, like, recap, because we haven't talked about lipids in a little bit, remember from, like, the guidelines, there's four main groups that we we're kind of thinking about. So the first one, obviously, is secondary prevention, patients that have clinical ASCVD. They also have patients whose LDL is above 190 or higher, um, and that's a different treatment algorithm. That's what we're going for an LDL less than 100 and all that stuff. Um, and then we have our patients who have diabetes, automatically a candidate for uh, moderate intensity, and then some other factors can put them in as make them a candidate for high intensity. And then patients who are primary prevention based on their ASCVD risk kind of puts them at uh, one of four risk categories. And um, depending on their other cofactors and things like that, they can depend on whether we're starting therapy or in then what the intensity of that therapy is. Right. But those are the four main like statin groups, if you will. And then we're kind of going from there. So if you aren't familiar with that, check out our episode on the uh, LDL guidelines from 2018. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have some data on, uh, what was that new one that got approved? Bembidoic acid. Oh yeah. And, saw uh, that. I don't have any outcome data with it yet, but hopefully be cool. Uh, it's a cool name. So yeah. hopefully we'll have some good data with that. Eventually we'll get more practice in saying it. Yeah, for sure. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. Sounds right to me. Cool. But yeah, so that's this patient. I would say a Torva 10 or a Torva 80 and call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a reasonable thing you could do. You can just swap those today. And you, there's, since you don't have to sit there and monitor electrolytes and blood pressure, like with a lot of these other blood pressure medicines or for be concerned about heart failure, exacerbation, pretty reasonable thing to do. I would think we can get this guy to like goal medication within three visits. Yeah. Easily. Yeah, maybe not gold doses, still yeah. takes some time, but yeah, get them on the correct meds, sure. 
even though we have to switch all of his meds. Every, everything. Be like, listen, go in your, look at your meds you have. Okay, take all those and throw so them in the trash. So you just refilled all your medications. Throw them all away. Fortunately, in the core console at RX Pharmacy, everything's free. Right. So you don't have to worry about it. Just right. throw them away. Mix them with some coffee grounds. Exactly. Good to go. <laughs> don't even do that. Just toss them because nobody steals in our, <laughs> in our university there. Everyone's just very uh, Everybody, courteous. There's and no crime. It's great. In our clinic. We just chill. Yeah. No security needed whatsoever. <laughs> Oxycodone just sitting on the counter because no one would ever take it. And we hate opioids. We don't even have a C2 cabinet. Yeah, they we don't just need them. sit out there. So, anything else with this guy? No, I think uh, we got him in pretty good shape. I think so. Man, glad he came here. <sighs> Me too. So that other doctor he was at, that was a yeah. disaster. Then we had to write a very angry letter to that <laughs> doctor and tell him to read up on his stuff. Yep. Just sent him a whole list of articles. Sent him a bunch of articles. And he's like, well, I have all the guidelines. Well, first of all, you're not following those, but here's the articles. And also, here's a link to my podcast. What are you doing? <laughs> we went over this person's case. Just listen to our episode. Yeah. We just we looked at the destruction you had caused and fixed them <laughs> on the air. It's cool. So, yeah, that's a, that's a patient case. Um, I'll uh, make a PDF file and post this like on the website or yeah. something like that, just as, without the questions filled in. And then you can fill in as you go through the episode. We'll, we'll do that. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's a fun game. I told you now that you've already listened, so that's unfortunate. Just don't but, do it while you drive. Yes. Unless you have a Tesla, then go for it. Okay, sure. Maybe. Don't. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. We'll get sued. <laughs> <laughs> do not drive or write things down while you're driving. Everyone listening. Okay. Um, so anything else for you, Cole? That's all I got, man. Cool. All right, y'all. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, we definitely appreciate it. Um, if you guys have any questions for us, our email addresses will be in the show notes. Uh, you can also reach us, obviously, on any of the social media platforms. Instagram is definitely where we tend to hang out a lot. And um, if you want to text us directly, you can do that. Um, it's area code 415-943-6116. Uh, if you want to support the podcast at all, um, check out our Patreon account. Um, we have pharmacotherapy lectures posted up there. We're, I've been doing like two a week um, as far as posting uh, new material up there. You get access to the actual lecture that I gave in class. So you're going to hear like me answering questions and stuff. You're going to feel like you're a part of it. It's a great experience. Um, plus you get the slide sets and all that. So you can download all that stuff. And uh, it's like three bucks a month. So, you know, go find a friend and then they just split it. And then you guys can just share the information and totally just beat the system. I dig it. And um, definitely, we'll use all the money for that to just kind of reinvest back in the, into the podcast and uh, hopefully make it a better experience overall for, for you guys. So um, thank you guys so much. If you have any questions, reach out to us, and we will see you next time. Later.